Hello and welcome to the Mage the Hero Described podcast. No intro song, no overproduced intro, nothing to wait through, just talking Mage and related Matt Wagner stuff. This is the show for fans and readers of Matt Wagner's Mage comic series. I'm your host, Kevin Hawkins, and in this episode, I'll be reviewing and talking about issue number eight of Mage 3, The Hero Denied. Before I get into this issue, a spoiler warning. As with the other episodes, if you haven't read this issue or any of the past Mage comic series, I promise I'm going to spoil this issue and parts of past issues from The Hero Discovered and Hero Defined completely and totally. No doubt about it. Some of the notes I've got down for this one, trust me, gonna ruin them. So, I'm just gonna dive right into this issue. At the end of issue number seven, Magda, Kevin Matchstick's wife, has been abducted by an incubus and is en route to the Umbra Sprite's headquarters at Archeron. Kevin wakes up early in the morning in the city's Rose Garden, where he had passed out. He's hung over from the after-effects of the magic potion that allowed him to track the questing beast, and he races home just in time to get a confused Hugo onto his school bus, which is full of red caps and disappears into the mists and into the dark fairy realms. Now, at that happening, Kevin tries to rescue him, gets slammed by a magic bolt cannon, and uh, it disappears into the fairy mists. Kevin races to the house, panicked about his wife and daughter, about Magda and Miranda, entering into the dark fog of the fairy realms that surround the house. And before he can go in, a huge fist slams through the front door, and Kevin is confronted by an enormous ogre. This issue opens with a passed-out Magda, surrounded by the Grackle Thorns, Sasha, Olga, and Zofia. They're discussing how surprised and resistant the Incubus was when he found out that his reward for bringing in Magda was in fact, well, getting eaten by the Gracklethorns, and they are downright indignant about his lack of appreciation. So while they're going on about that, Magda comes to, and it's apparent from the artwork on the wall that we're in the Umbra Sprite's office. Sasha greets Magda very politely, very formally, and Magda is having none of it. Her teeth bared, she's glowering at the pale trio. She demands to know what has happened to her husband and her children. But after some not-so-veiled threats uh, regarding the painful alternatives that await her if she resists them, Sasha takes Magda to her private quarters. And uh, again, in the last frame of this, Zofia is doing one of her usual <laughs> dancer gymnastic moves, with no regard to whatever is going on at the moment. And in the same frame, and one of my favorite bits of dialogue in the series so far, Sasha compliments Magda's dress, which is pretty much the exact same little black dress that uh, Sasha is wearing. She comments, cute dress, by the way, to which Magda replies, up yours, monster. And I'd have to go back. But this is, uh, is pretty unique, in that it's one of the few times any of our primary villains are in communication with any of our heroes and being, well, I don't know, conversational. I mean, we have Laszlo or Stannis captured by Mirth and Hero Discovered. That's pretty much an interrogation. The same happens uh, late in The Hero Defined, where Kevin and John Strider question a Spriggan Flint. 
But this, amid the tension, the overall battle between good and evil, Sasha's just matter-of-factly paying Magda a compliment, as if she hadn't just threatened to have her shoulders dislocated. I mean, fittingly enough, it strikes me as a, I don't know, a weird sociopathic action, you know, where one where one's actions follows with no regard for anything that has gone on before. So, at this point, we return to Kevin and the Ogre, and we're going to spend most of this issue flashing back and forth between, um, between Archeron and... What's going on with Kevin at the house? And we return to Kevin and the Ogre. Ogres aren't very bright. This one really has a one-track mind. Keeps saying, skin a goat, roast a pig, salt the bones, juicy and sweet. And Kevin tries to reason with this thing. Um, kinda. I mean, I don't think he expects any answers, but just in case he gives it a warning, demanding to know what's happened to his wife and daughter. Now, at various times in this series, I've talked about Kevin's passive-aggressive attitude at times, flaking out on family responsibilities, and just generally, I don't know, casting around for meaning as a hero who's, you know, put aside heroing to try and make a peaceful life with his family. But he's a warrior. There's a war on. And he just kind of walked off the field. That doesn't mean the battle ended. And as for him pursuing the peaceful life... Well, I don't know, what's that old saying? Just because you're paranoid doesn't mean they aren't out to get you. So, as we've seen, retired or not, the Umbra Sprite is out to get Kevin. Yeah, I think there's, um, there's even that song that Kevin is singing at the start of uh, Hero Defined with Joe Fat that still applies uh, by the jam. Better stop dreaming of the quiet life, because it's the one we'll never know. So, anyway, if nothing else... For all of Kevin's passive-aggressive attitudes at times, flaking out on family responsibilities, and just casting around for meaning, Kevin is in his element now. A knockdown, drag-out brawl. And this big green ogre, you know, it's like ward-covered, snot-green, nasty teeth, it's got a ragged, broken horn and large claws, it just slams Kevin into the ground. And while this is a really big dramatic showdown, we we also get some comedic beats. This is really a laugh-out-loud panel of Kevin's feet sticking out of the ground, up into the air from the hole that he's literally been pounded into by this ogre. And it's got to be a deep hole, since we really only see his legs sticking up from about below the knees. So he's been pounded into the ground hard. And despite this, um, you know, it, it pretty much signals somebody getting their ass handed to them in a fight. Despite this, Kevin is calling out, I'm warning you, ogre! And and even the words in his word balloon are upside down. And once the ogre picks Kevin up by one leg, swinging him around, Kevin is still asking, where are they? As if if Big, Dumb, and Ugly would have any idea. But I guess you follow the lead you've got. And on the next page, this ogre just continues to absolutely wail on Kevin. And the layout of this page is great. Uh, the um, These four panels, they've got like a, I don't know, the panel composition has like a cinematic film frame-like action. Each panel featuring oversized four-letter sound effects and the style of the lettering and the color in these letters and the panels does a lot to pull them together and reinforce the feeling of symmetry that, as I said, really gives this this cinematic feeling as the ogre just slams Kevin around like a rag doll. And it's talking about roasting a pig, 
beating it well, making it tender to eat, literally showing how it tenderizes its meal. And if Kevin wasn't an avatar, a hero, any of these full-force whacks against the ground would have done the trick. An ordinary mortal would have been just done for. Finally, the ogre drops Kevin, who is totally unfazed. In fact, he's just even more pissed off, warning the ogre that it has one last chance and the ogre responds with this huge sonic blast, just over a half-page panel showing this yellow-green swirling river of noise with these power rings circling it. They're just slamming at Kevin, and the size of the panel and the bright colors in this frame, they really all just contribute to it popping off the page. And Kevin is clearly, he's disoriented, ears ringing, head surrounded by this green halo of disorientation, fighting through the assault to ask after Magda and Miranda. My wife and daughter, where are they? To which the ogre replies, wife and daughter taste like pig, as it throws Kevin against a small shed, shattering it and sending recreational and sporting gear flying around. Now, we know Magda isn't dead, but Kevin doesn't. So even though the ogre is probably just repeating Kevin's words back at him about his wife and daughter, it does have these ominous overtones that make it sound like the ogre is claiming to have eaten them. And with that, we return to Magda at the villain's lair. Sasha is dropping her off in her very impressive suite, a well-appointed prison cell, but a prison cell nonetheless. She is warned that many dangers lurk within the shadows of the keep, dangers far worse than the Gracklethorns, and that she should not attempt any escape. Magda lashes back verbally, saying that nothing is going to stop me from trying to find my kids. And Sasha replies that they'd expected as much. The Umbra Sprite treasures them, the Gracklethorns, as well. Which is kind of funny. And maybe a bit, uh, I don't know, um... A bit ignorant for uh, for the Gracklethorn to say. Uh, maybe the Umbra Sprite is mellowed. Maybe the current feminine manifestation has brought out, I don't know, more maternal instincts? Because I've read the clippings, and the Umbra Sprite's attitude towards its offspring in the past would be something... Well, it wouldn't be something that I would describe as particularly treasuring them. The, uh, the Gracklethorns, I don't recall, being uh, being nurtured very much. Anyway, Sasha might be in for a rude awakening at some point. Who knows? Maybe they will prove to be the Umbra Sprite's weakness, after all. Either way, as an added incentive, Hugo is thrown into the room, escorted by Olga and Zofia, as an added incentive to stay put and behave. And Hugo is unharmed. The Gracklethorns leave, warning Magda that Hugo's life is in her hands now, to which she has another wonderful reply, it always was, you bitch. Magda and Hugo talk for a bit. We find out that the Red Caps didn't really do anything to him, and, you know, I just noticed that uh, that Hugo's wearing a red cap, and <laughs> that's, I don't know, that's some funny shit when you think about it. Anyways, Magda tells Hugo that the villains are using them as bait. She talks about suddenly feeling lightheaded and empty, to which she says, oh no, Chloe, the name of uh, their cat and her familiar... But before we can find out why, Hugo goes running off to a door, looking for a way out, and the door opens out into one of those vast red chasms 
that we first saw in The Hero Discovered in the Styx Hotel and Casino, and then uh, again recently in The Hero Denied. Literally, the door just opening into an endless pit, and Magda pulling Hugo back by his hoodie from stepping out into the void. We also learn that Magda's wedding ring is enchanted. It's warm and sparkling, a sign that Kevin is alive. But she's worried. She has no idea about Miranda's fate, the one family member we still haven't yet seen. Now, the mystery of Miranda's whereabouts is about to be solved as we return to Kevin battling the ogre. Kevin is on his hands and knees amid the shattered remnants of the family's storage shed. As the ogre advances and steps on a bright, sparkling pink box thing. It's one of Miranda's patterns we've been seeing her build since Kevin first went out on the road over a year or so ago. And the box erupts in a flurry of cartoony sound effects, these little red hearts, pink stars. Now, we've seen one of these go off before. In fact, the last time we saw one, Kevin got a bit salty with Magda when he found out that she was helping Miranda with her emerging witch skills. Now, other than exploding with a childlike amazement, the pattern box doesn't seem to do much, but it does enrage the ogre, and we see Miranda hiding amid the wreckage. But the girl doesn't use this as an opportunity to run away. No. Instead, she steps out between the ogre and her father, and with a little fist defiantly held up in the air, she yells at the ogre, Hey, Mr. Monster, you leave my daddy alone. And this is another panel on the issue where I really dig the way the art both conveys emotion and focus. Miranda's in the foreground. She's where you look, and the artwork on her is more detailed line art, and the coloring really makes her eyes shine with reflected light. And after looking at Miranda and the word bubble, the eyes tend to move to Kevin in the background, looking up surprised. But the detail of the line art is uh, more, I don't know, um, for lack of a better word, I'll use cartoonish. A single line defines each raised eyebrow, his eyes are each a single dot. And here's the thing, he's looking at Miranda, and following his gaze brings our eyes right back to her. And you can see the absolute relief on Kevin's face as he sees Miranda and her little construction pattern that the ogre stepped on. And I don't know if there will be more to the naming of these constructs that Miranda makes, but he, Kevin, definitely calls it a pattern, not a pattern. Now. Maybe this is just in the habit of parents who will at times call things by the imprecise, by the mispronounced names their children use, you know, Pschetti instead of spaghetti, Anana instead of banana, and so on. We'll see. No doubt, one way or the other. Um, I have no illusions about how time and experience changes the way we perceive, notice, and value different aspects of art and entertainment. No doubt a younger uh, a younger me might not feel the way I do about this panel and another I'll discuss in a bit. But as a father with a daughter, well, and you know, that definitely informs my response. Anyway, the more I look at Miranda in this panel, the more I love it. She is just fearless. Um, not fearless. She was hiding from the ogre, so she was afraid. She's better than fearless. She is brave. This is a great, amazing, brave moment. The kind of thoughtless, uncomplicated action of righteousness that almost only children can take acting from their conscience, their sense of justice, and, well, 
from their heart. And I swear to God, if I was watching this as a miniseries or in a movie, a scene like that would have me completely verklempt, if not bring tears to my eyes. I get emotionally swept up in my entertainment, damn it. I'm one of those people gasping to keep my overwhelming emotions contained at key character moments or plot turns, the whole fucking nine yards. And this is one of those moments that I just look at and go, yes, fuck yes, you go girl. Now one more thing finally hit me. <laughs> I mentioned that Miranda is acting from her heart. It's what spurs her bravery. And frankly, Miranda's a full-on bonafide hero. Think about it. Every time we see Miranda, she's wearing the same shirt we always see her in. Well, you know, not the exact same shirt. She's grown since issue one. But as in issue one, two, and four, she always has that big old heart on her shirt. In issue five, we only see the back of her. I think that's on purpose, maybe, to keep it from being too obvious too soon. But every single time, she has a heart on her shirt. Every single time. Just like a hero right down to when she appears in those signature Wagner silhouette panels of Miranda and Magda in issue number one. Magda's silhouette is all in black, but Miranda's black silhouette has that big red heart standing out, just like we see with her dad's bolt, just like we would see with Kirby's lion head and Joe Fat's lightning bolt in Hero Defined. And while we're on the subject of fashion choices of the Hunter Pendragon kids, I can't help but notice something about Hugo's wardrobe. Hugo is almost always wearing a steel bluish hoodie or t-shirt. I think there are maybe two exceptions, when Hugo's going to bed and when he's hugging his dad goodbye in issue number four. And uh, I think in those cases he's wearing an orange pajama top or t-shirt. And orange, that's the color that usually seems to show up as the lining color inside his hoodie. I haven't gone back and looked at this exhaustively, but I did a little bit of a spot check just to, to, to see what was going on with these. Um... I think all in all, one of my favorite panels with that hoodie shows Kevin and Hugo in the Edsel 7 license-plated VW Bug. They're talking, Hugo's leaning back, and that hoodie really drapes over him nicely, and that steel bluish color looks kind of familiar to me. Anyway, Kevin tells Miranda to hang on, that he's coming, and he notices something. He reaches down and picks up a baseball bat. And this has been in the background since the ogre first smashed Kevin into the storage shed, at the edges, in the background. And I'll admit, I did not notice this the first time I read through the issue. I registered the sports equipment in the background. It goes flying when Kevin hits the shed. It's all around him when he's on the ground amid the wreckage. The bat is there at the edges of the panel. And you know, Kevin Matchstick and a bat means one thing. Kevin picks up the bat, and we get a sweet full-page panel of him lighting that sucker up. Lightning crackles coming off of it as he gets ready to finish things off with this ogre, and the howler lets loose with another scream, which Kevin blocks with the bat, and then proceeds to take off an arm, and then a leg, before he asks one more time, who sent you? But this nasty really has a one-track mind, and... In a manner that recalls Kevin destroying the root monster in issue one with his thrown, energized twig, Kevin throws the bat right at the ogre. And these panels really capture his power and his mastery of his power as the bat slams through the ogre's head, leaving a trail of lightning and crackling lightning as it emerges out on the other side. The color choices here, dark purples, 
green and black really make the white and blue electricity of the bat pop. Same thing with the panel where the crackling bat swirls, spinning as it boomerangs back to Kevin's hand. But his victory is interrupted by Miranda crying, and this is emphasized by the word bubble literally, her word bubble literally dripping liquid-like, and he throws the bat aside. Now, in a neat touch, the bat is already disintegrating from the time it's spent holding the power of Excalibur. After all, it's just a bat. And we see that she's found Chloe, the family cat and her mom's familiar, dead in the wreckage of the house. And this ties back to Magda at the Umbra Sprite's headquarters, suddenly feeling lightheaded and empty when she exclaimed, Oh no, Chloe! That emptiness, that connection with Chloe, cut off. It also gives us a sense that these two scenes with the separated family members are happening more or less concurrently. Miranda is crying, and right away one of her first comments isn't about herself, but instead about how her mom is going to be so sad. And this page holds two more of my favorite panels from this issue. There's uh, this one where Kevin is attempting to comfort his daughter, and then, as he carries her out of the wreckage of the house, wrapped in what looks like his old black duster, which he's pulled from the wreckage, and... Wow. Um, I don't want to just pass by, like, you know, a random, hey, this panel is cool comment. There are a lot of amazing panels in the Mage books. I could mention just a few for instance examples, but frankly I would take up most of the podcast and still feel like I was overlooking some gem that contained either an iconic moment, great dialogue, a character's reaction shot, some use of colors, something done with the lettering or artistic styling. As standout high points go, though, And as I've grown up with this series, I think it's safe to say, you know, that a favorite panel in Hero Discovered would probably involve Kevin and Mirth and Magic or some something with Edsel. Uh, A favorite panel from Hero Defined would probably involve Kevin and Magda and the starting moments of their relationship. And and now, so far, this panel, if not my favorite of the entire series is certainly my favorite of The Hero Denied. Um, I'm not really posting any more at the website, but uh, I'll post it at uh, through the Instagram account. So Kevin then brings Miranda from the dark fairy realms into, um, well, our world. And this is her first time stepping over, and we find out that this ability to move between the two worlds at will is something that Magda taught Kevin. They come up behind a group of people gathered around the burning wreckage of their house, and we get some cool insight into how the whole ordinary world, uh, magical world overlap thing works, or rather how magical phenomenon manifests in the ordinary world. Uh, First of all, though um, monsters and magical hijinks aside, Kevin is first and foremost apparent. Miranda exclaims as they approach the wreckage, Dad, look! Home! To which Kevin replies, No, sweetie, it was only a house. Minimizing the loss, framing the importance of home as something bigger than a structure. And also, Kevin's been through this before. At the start of his journey, when his apartment is destroyed, up in flames, 
back then as he was coming to terms with his true path, with leaving the ordinary world behind, he had a totally different reaction. As he watched that apartment burn, all of his worldly possessions inside, he reluctantly leaves the scene at Mirth's urging, saying, you know, frankly, he's stunned and heartbroken, saying, I'm burning up back there. And he was. The old Kevin Matchstick was being destroyed, burned up, transformed. And as you may recall, that wasn't exactly something Kevin was on board with for a long, long time. Some doors you walk through, others, well, others life shoves you through. Anyway, the neighbors are gathering around. No one has a clue what's happened. As far as the ordinary world is concerned, the house just exploded in flames. One person theorizes it was a drug lab, another person comments about how the husband never seemed to do anything. But here's the interesting part. Someone asks, what was their name? To which another person replies, that's strange, I forget. Now, maybe this is some leftover charm or magic that Magda put in place, or maybe it's just some kind of innate protective aura of forgetfulness that surrounds heroes and those closest to them. For instance, there was the apartment in Montreal where Kevin stayed with Joe, Kirby, and Wally. Did anyone remember them when they left, or did they just fade from memory like, you know, sidewalk chalk washing away in a summer rain? Either way, Kevin gathers up Miranda, carries her away, and we see that he's observed by two of the Gracklethorns, Alexi and Carol, Posh and Scary Spice Gracks, the Umbra Sprite's muscle, and his adept. At least that's what he's called Carol, although it's a little unclear exactly what was meant by that. Maybe she somehow has some magical capability, or she is who he perceives is, uh, as, the, as the one closest to him, or... You know, again, adept to me has always had some kind of a magical connotation. Now, now Carol is just stunned by the sheer power of the Pendragon. You can see it on her face, how he shrugged off a point-blank blast from an elf cannon, how he took down the Yowler Ogre, which she claims can peel off dragon scales, and I'll assume by the sheer power of its yell uh, is how it does that. And she she claims to to still be half-blinded by the blaze of his weapon, of his power. Alexi, well, frankly, Alexi is unimpressed. She's claiming he's pathetic, he's balding, he's paunchy around the middle. His power is a mere light show, which she is certain that the Umber Sprite's darkness will consume. Her opinion is that the Pendragon is dead meat. He just doesn't know it yet. Now, Alexi goes on to remind Sasha that the Umber Sprite has fought this so-called champion for centuries, since he was an actual king, not just some schlub in a t-shirt. And while Carol protests that they should be cautious and not overconfident, that even a goddess was not able to defeat him, Alexi wants none of her shit. She is done with this conversation. The Umber Sprite will be victorious, end of story. And she stalks off into the mist, notably in this frame at least, by herself. Carol is, for the moment, just watching her walk away. And, I don't know, maybe I'm reading too much into this, but I look at the expression on Carol's face after they watch Kevin's battle, and she looks more than just stunned by the power of the Pendragon. She looks almost awed. And I have to wonder if this is a grackle thorn who is starting the first baby steps down a road that may be at cross-purposes with the Umbra Sprite, 
as if, um, you know, no pun intended, she's seen the light. With this, we pick back up at Archeron Insurance Headquarters, where Carol is meeting with the Umbra Sprite, who senses uh, the anxiety uh, in, uh, in her voice. And the Umbra Sprite confirms that the Pendragon is formidable, to which Carol replies that the others envision an easy victory, but Carol believes that they must take great care. And the Umbra Sprite agrees, validating Carol's apprehension that it is prudent. But the Umbra Sprite continues that it must wait. Why? Well, maybe those snakes emerging from the Umbra Sprite's hands where fingers should be are a clue. The Umbra Sprite continues that suddenly it finds itself transfixed by a troubling manifestation, the advent of another provocative force. And in the last page of this issue, we see a shocked Carol looking at the Umbra Sprite full-on, and we get a clear view of the snakes jutting from her hands in place of fingers, two pushing through her hair where her eyes would be, and one emerging from her mouth. As the Umbra Sprite, somehow, I'm not sure how, says that this is a presence that it hasn't felt for many years. End of issue. And really, what the fuck? I mean, really, what the fuck? It's kind of my thing to try and answer that kind of question. So here goes. I consulted Dr. Internet, and other than some references to a scene in the most recent King Arthur movie, Legend of the Sword, I wasn't really able to find any notable mention of snakes in that particular story cycle, in the Arthurian story cycle. It is entirely possible that this is the emergence of, I don't know, some kind of ancient mythical snake god force, or who knows what. But if we look around inside the mage series itself, you can see that uh, the hero defined is full of snakes. Now, I'm not going to get too deep into this. There are all sorts of places you can go with this, especially when looking at Matt's acknowledgement of... Um, of sexual visual metaphors that occur throughout these books, or at least occur in Hero Defined. So, some major spoilers here in case you happen to be reading Hero Defined for the very first time as you are foolishly listening to this very spoilerific podcast. This here isn't, uh, this example isn't one specifically mentioned by Matt, so maybe I'm taking a leap here. But ever since issue one of Hero Defined, the pale encanter, Emil Grackleflint, has been surrounded by or in the company of snakes. In issue one of Hero Defined, he even feeds the uh, the flying messenger that notifies him of Kevin's whereabouts to one of these pythons. This, in, in many ways, it's an event that's mirrored in Hero Denied when Zofia eats the winged fairy messenger who tells the Gracklethorns of Kevin's battle in the park. I mean, I tell you, these nasties, they just don't get it. Bad bosses. They keep feeding messengers off, uh, either eating them themselves or feeding them to other creatures. And, of course, we had what we talked about earlier with the, uh, with the incubus being eaten by the, uh, by the Gracklethorns. Bad bosses. Uh, we especially see these snakes, though. Let's Going back to these snakes. We see these snakes are very prominent after Kevin and Magda first kiss. The Pale Encanter is awakened and surrounded by these squiggling sperm-like snakes. Later, one of these snakes, we can assume it's a manifestation of the return number sprite, enters and possesses a dead Spriggenflint, which arises 
and releases Emil Grackleflink from the prison in which Waliat has encased him. Now, shortly thereafter, the other snakes return, massing around and overtaking Emil, the pale encanter, as they merge to give shape and form to the returning Umbra Sprite, who ultimately consumes Emil. So now, in a sense, one could surmise that Emil is inside the Umbra Sprite. Maybe dead, maybe not. Who knows? Because, you know, magic, because comics, and just because. But I've got to wonder if this is in some way Emil forcing a return, attempting to overtake the Umbra Sprite, and these snakes are a sort of harbinger or initial manifestation, or maybe it's something else. It's unclear how or why the Umbra Sprite first manifested upon its return as a mass of coalescing serpents, other than, you know, the sheer cool factor and all sorts of other evil and sinister connotations around snakes. So I don't know if that's what's happening, but man, it would be rich to see Emil Grackleflint face off with and give the um, the obsequious, the, uh, I don't know, the company line Gracklethorns a piece of his rebellious mind. And that brings us to the letter column. The Incantations column opens with a letter from Jeremy King, who shares his story of discovering Mage, and finally reading a Mage series in real time with Hero Denied. In a manner similar to the personal stories shared by many that align stages of their life with the stages of Kevin Matchstick's story, Jeremy mentions that his life has grown alongside the series. When he read Hero Defined, he was young and confident and ready to take on the world. These days, he's nearing middle age, content with his place in the world and cradling his newborn son. Joseph Sampson also writes in, Glad to see the Pendragon fighting the good fight. He shares his experience encountering the uh, the hero discovered at the age of 12 or so via collected graphic novel in his school library. And so, that's a, that's a pretty cool school. Hero Denied is Joseph's first time catching a mage series in real time, as it were, and another who mentions how Kevin's latest adventures strike a chord with him, but for a different reason than those earlier adventures. Now he has a young son and a family to look after, like Kevin. And last of all, Sivian Wall shares a multi-generational journey as a comic fan and conflicted creator, as well as sharing some advice about pursuing your creative muse. And I have to agree with this advice. You know the old saw about if you want to be a writer or an artist or an actor, get a sensible, safe degree or education that you can fall back on. Well, you know, the problem with that is, first of all, pursuing that sensible, safe degree takes time and energy that you could be giving to your craft and to your muse. And it also gives you something, a safety net of sorts, which means you never quite have the time, the energy, or the dedication to provide pursuing your um, creative road. Uh, in his reply to the letter, Matt confirms that the realities of a creative existence can be challenging and does tend to separate the wheat from the chaff, but it's never too late to get started, even if only for your own personal gratification. On to other things. The newest Mage Trade paperback collection just came out. This is book number two of the Hero Defined collection, and book number four of the overall planned six-book collection that will cover the entire series from Hero Discovered through Hero Denied. This collects issues 9 through 15 of Hero Defined, and this collection is just a pleasure. It's about 200 pages of nonstop action. Just flipping through it, I, I found myself sucked right back in and rereading whole sections of this story all over again. And I gotta say, so far, out of, out of the three mage books, 
It seems to me that the second half of The Hero Defined is by far the densest storytelling of the trilogy. There is so much going on, both in the text, the subtext, the visual metaphors, and so on. Again, much of this was commented on in the uh, in the Hero Defined letter column and confirmed by Matt, at least, about some of those visual metaphors. I mean, you know, revisiting this book, Hero Defined, especially in light of what may be going on at the end of issue 8 of Hero Denied, with the Umbra Sprite getting all snakeified, I... I can't even wrap my head around half of what I feel is going on with Emil in this second book. Um, I really have to read it again and focus in on him. I think if I'm gonna if I'm gonna make that breakthrough, I just think there's a lot more going on than I than I have gotten from it just yet. You know, as a villain, he's exceeded his thug-like origins. He's wrapping himself in this ever-changing trappings of a sorcerer he's in possession of something that at the end i think we we finally learn is called the arcana rod it's his link to the divine spark and that's something that's never fully explained but all in all it seems to me that he is tied to some kind of sexual energy and vampirism and vampirism especially is a theme that matt likes to explore both in mage and grendel uh he's vampire-like and that he's leeching energy off Kevin to empower the stone golem when Kevin uses his power. He sends a succubus after Joe Fat, another vampire, specifically sexual in nature. And that arcana rod, the divine spark, I don't know, something about that sounds evocative of procreation. Anyways, this is all reinforced to me by the fact that this whole story arc shows Kevin Matchstick surrounded by his, his boys club, and ultimately moving from that into a relationship with Magda. There's a whole transformation going on with him alongside his heroic journey. Now, Matt has mentioned in past interviews that much of Mage 2 is about Kevin having to leave the boys' club for his relationship and continuing the process of growing up. Now, another thing that stood out to me on a quick reread of these issues was Wally Utt's reaction to Magda's arrival and, and Kevin's reaction to her. He pulls Kevin into the kitchen for a talk, and Kevin asks, So, what? Is this some further harangue about my destiny and your power? To which Wally replies, No, it's about my destiny and your power. And he tells Kevin that his power, Kevin's power, will not protect him from the witches in the other room, Isis, Trish, and Magda. He goes on to say, Take it from one who knows, lad. The steps you're about to take will change your life forever. So Kevin's power won't protect him from ultimately falling in love with Magda. That's what he says that seems to have to do with Kevin's power. But what does this have to do with Wally's destiny? Unless Wally's destiny is somehow tied up with Kevin and Magda falling in love. And with that, I'll refer you back to Hugo in that familiar-looking bluish hoodie that at times has been so large it looks like it virtually drapes over him. This collection is amazing. It really makes reading the whole story so much easier than going through old issues, old single issues. I, uh, I love the cover artwork on this, too. Kevin falling backwards into that dark void of the Midnight Maze. Wally Utz upturned hat bubbling with purple magic. And Magda posed there with her cool shock of purple hair, that star beauty mark, a bemused smile, 
kind of positioned like she's emerging from the magician's hat. The, uh, the only thing I wish these editions had was the original cover art for the issues within. Um, I'd been holding off on getting these for a while, but I'm going to fix that shortly. Uh, the full set is really going to look amazing together. Now, this is the point in the show where I usually do um, cover reviews, uh, but I'm running out of time. Uh, that said, uh, you know, as I take the notes of these, I, I like to go through all of my insights and thoughts, write down all my notes for that first, and then I'll go and read reviews, you know, listen to podcasts, so forth and so on for uh, for this next part of the uh, of the episode. So I finally caught up with some things, and I want to recommend you check out episode 21 of Can I Thwip It? The Can I Thwip It podcast, which features Eli and Manus talking about issue 8, this issue of Hero Denied, and episode 24, where the guys interview Matt Wagner. I think they even did that interview on video, so just... Yeah, listen to that podcast. Now, a nice thing about that interview is that they briefly discuss how Matt made the cover photo of issue number 15 of Hero Discovered. And this is really timely, considering that uh, that a listener, Robert Wyndham, recently wrote into the pod asking about a blog post on the website that had linked to an interview with Matt by the guys at Comic Cover Story. Apropos of the name, they spent a while talking about how that cover, the cover of issue 15 of Hero Discovered, was created. I linked to it from the podcast's website at magetheherodescribed.com, but for some reason the video is no longer online. In fact, their entire YouTube channel is empty for some reason. So check out episode 24 of Can I Thwip It for the lowdown on how that cover was made, and a lot of other just cool insights and good general fun and nonsense. While I'm at it, in episode 25... Manus gives his thoughts about the hero discovered, which he just finished reading for the first time. And one of the things they talk about is what goes down at the end of that series in issue number 15. And guys, in response to the issues you raised, here are just some quick thoughts. I'm probably not going to cover everything, but let me just cover what I can quickly off the top of my head. At the end of Hero Discovered, the Umbra Sprite is virtually immobile in his office. You know, over the course of the series, he has gone from being this slim figure and all the way to being an almost unrecognizable grotesquerie. And part of his immobility is the close proximity of the bat, or maybe more to the point, Kevin's fully emerged power. Emil comes in on him, sees his condition... And in a fit of disgust and bravado and rebellion, bashes his head in, bashes the Umbra Sprite's head in with the potted plant from which the Umbra Sprite was continually smoking throughout the series. And it is in this state, this, I don't know, this dead state, that Kevin finds the Umbra Sprite shortly before the sticks self-destructs. As far as I know, none of that comes from Arthurian myth in any way, shape, or form. I'm no mythological expert, so I could be wrong, but as near as I can tell, the ending of The Hero Discovered, aside from Kevin drawing the sword from the stone, um, or bat from the dumpster, uh, it's Matt's own storyline, not a retelling or reimagining of some specific tale. Now, some elements and characters may be from myth, like the Hunter and the Hounds. I think I've talked about the Hunter and the Hounds when they made their reappearance 
in uh, an earlier issue of Hero Denied. But for now, I'll refer you to David Steinberger's site, The Annotated Mage, where he gives some background info about the mythical origins of the hunter and the hounds. Just look for the uh, show notes uh, for a link to that. I think it's annotatedmage.net. Again, check the uh, check the notes. All right, that's it for this week's episode of the uh, Mage, the Hero Described podcast, or this month's episode. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to join me next time when I will review issue number nine. Again, if you have any comments or thoughts you'd like to share, please visit uh, magetheherodescribed.com where you can find instructions about the many ways you can get in touch. You can also find past podcasts, links to reviews of Mage comics, and so on. You can even subscribe for updates and notices when a new podcast, gallery, or other content is published. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it through the usual social networks, and especially rate and review it on iTunes. It really helps other listeners discover the show. Thanks, and until next time, stay excellent.